Good, let's go to him in prayer this morning. God, we indeed recognize your goodness. We recognize our sin. We recognize today your good gift in the gospel, and we give you glory. That indeed you have chosen the likes of us to love and to cherish and God to save and to redeem and to use. We're grateful for Covenant Church that you placed her at 263 East State Street in Sharon, Pennsylvania, and that you have purpose for her as those who are called out to be sent for your name's sake. We're grateful, God, for uh, this opportunity this morning. We, we don't want to take lightly the fact that we are gathered as your people, uh, both uh, by uh, streaming and by presence this morning in such a way that we might worship together. How good is that? And it's by your grace that you've made this way for each one to be a part of that this morning. For that we are grateful. You are good. You are mighty. You are our Redeemer. And we know indeed, God, that you, uh, according to your will, are our healer as well. And so where there are those uh, in our midst uh, today, uh, those whom we know who desperately need a touch of your hand upon them, God, we would pray, indeed, in the name of Jesus, that you would touch and make well, that you draw men, women, and children uh, to your name, to your gospel, by your power in God making them strong, being with them in their weakness, and allowing them to know of your presence in it all. God, for those whom we know, maybe those who are here this morning who just are in emotional battles, and depression is a real thing, anxiety is a real thing, God, worry in our lives in these days is a real thing, and yet we know, God, that you are sufficient in all of these things. And so we pray that you would allow us to know by your grace of your sufficiency this morning when we walk through dark places. God, we would pray for those whom we love that uh, are spiritually lost, uh, those who wander and, uh, God, either have turned away from truth or are not aware of truth. We pray that by your Spirit that you would reveal truth to them, maybe using even our lips, our lives, for your glory in that way, that we would indeed see many added to our number, uh, not just as a church, but for the sake of your kingdom. God, that those whom we love would be touched by you, their eyes opened, their hearts turned, their brains engaged in loving you and knowing that you have indeed loved them. God, as we pray for those things of the people that we know and love, we also pray for people who are in far off places that uh, we may have some acquaintance to, uh, we think today, God, for the ministry of Nations in Sierra Leone. Uh, we have heard about them. Some of us have been there, and yet we know that even in this day, even in this Sabbath day, there is a spiritual warfare there that we would not begin to understand or know. And so we pray. We pray for your Holy Spirit to, to conquer that which the enemy would love to steal and destroy. God, specifically over the city of Rakasa, we pray, God, that indeed you would uh, purge out witchcraft and that your presence would be uh, in its place in power 
that those men and women, that the people of especially our schools that are there in Rakasa, God, that they would indeed know and see your power, your glory, your majesty. And that they would, as Paige encouraged us, to be able to go on and on and on about what they see of you in that place. God, in a very similar way, we pray that for ourselves. Our, our hearts um, are not completely hearts that adore you. <laughs> and yet we come to your word, a word that encourages us to do so. And so would you work in your glory by your grace in us this morning as we come even to your word. We pray and do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you know this about me. Uh, those of you that don't, let me give you a window into the Stoffer family. Uh, I grew up in a very passionate Steeler family. Right? Some of you know that. Yeah? Right? Indeed. So, so to give you some window of that passion, um, as a young boy, it was my job to retrieve Nerf balls that my dad would throw at the TV from his recliner, right? So if there was a bad call, if there was an ineffective play, uh, dad had Nerf balls next to his chair and he would wail them at the TV. Uh, in love, of course, and then it was my job as the youngest in the family to run, retrieve the balls, put them back next to dad's chair so that he would have an ever supply of being able to throw them at it. Uh, it's well known, hi mom, she watches every week, uh, that my mom's name, nickname is Coach, still by many. And the reason she's Coach is not because she coached me in Little League, uh, it's because when the Steeler game was on, she would question about every call. And she would always have a better one that they should have run. And so she just affectionately became named Coach over the long haul. Uh, to this day, uh, on Christmas or birthday, uh, that, uh, when a gift is given that is not Steeler-related, there is a bit of quiet and a very polite thank you. But if some way there is a Steeler insignia on the gift, there is a chant and an outbreak that starts. Steelers, Steelers, Steelers. It's just the culture of the Stauffer family. At, at our, in our basement, in our living rooms, as you watch the Steeler games, and, and get this, many, you might understand this, many people came to watch us watch the Steeler game, right? Uh, and, and it was because there was a culture that it was okay to yell, and it was okay to throw your fists, and it was okay to hug and embrace and maybe even kiss when something really good happened, right? It was just the reality of the culture. We were a passionate Steeler family. <laughs> now, listen, fortunately for me, um, we are also a compassionate Jesus family. Right? I, I, would, I would garner to believe that there are some who love the Steelers better now because of experiencing something in our basement than they did before. But I would know that there are others that have been compelled to follow Jesus as a result of the fervor that my family uh, exhibited with regard to Jesus. Uh, my dad was a, a worship leader. As a, he, we would have hymn sings, right? Any of you remember hymn sings? And he was a very passionate leader of hymn sings. In fact, there are songs that we sing today that still bring uh, great memories of watching my dad 
lead a congregation in worship. We'll close with one today and How Great Thou Art. Uh, I still have images of my dad running, I know this is hard for you guys to imagine, running across the stage, throwing his fist, encouraging people in order that they might sing. And the reality of that passion for Jesus was contagious and was compelling. Uh, there was many opportunities I know as a kid in which our living room, our basement, was filled with people who were dissecting the Word of God uh, in Bible study, loving to be a part of the reality of knowing God's Word. And I, as a little one, got to experience uh, things that I didn't understand at the time, but I knew that uh, those people who were gathered in my home loved Jesus. In church on Sunday... Youth group on Sunday night, quite frankly, any time the church doors were open, it wasn't out of duty, but out of devotion that our family was always there. As a family, we not only loved God, but we loved the church, and we loved being a part of a worshiping community. So as much as we may have compelled people to be Steelers fans, I am greatly blessed that we also were a family that compelled people to love Jesus. Now I share all of that. I share all of that because our challenge from the scripture this morning is whether our lives, whether your lives are compelling others to believe and being obedient to the scriptures with regard to worshiping God. If you're, if you're just joining us, we have been in a series since June walking through the first eight chapter of Acts. And we've gotten stalled <laughs> in some significant verses at the end of chapter 2. We've, for now, this week will be three weeks. We've been in chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And you might want to begin to turn there, but as you turn there, let me share with you uh, that we as a church um, have been studying, have been looking at the early church as it starts here in Acts in seeing people added to their number daily. And we've kind of gone, what? Like, they, like, added to their number daily? Like, so people were getting saved, like, all the time? Like, how does that happen? And, and we came to two conclusions. Two conclusions were this, that the church was compelling to unbelievers, that people wanted to know what they had, right? And that they were obedient, because it is indeed God that does the saving, and when God does the saving and places them among your uh, numbers, right, then the reality is, is you're doing something right. You're being obedient to the call of God as well. So we've been asking these three weeks, what, what made the early church compelling and obedient, right? And, and we've learned three things, two things. Today will be the third thing. Um, what makes us a compelling church, an obedient church? We are a learning community, right? We looked at that two weeks ago. And then last week we looked at the fact that we're a loving community. And this week we'll finish this little section of Acts 2, 42 through 47, by seeing that the reason the church was compelling and obedient is a, was a worshiping community. It was a worshiping community. So turn with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You should have this almost memorized by now. We've been in it uh, these three weeks. But hear the very word of God. And they, this is the early church, now 3,120 people, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We've looked at their devotion to the apostles' teaching. That's a learning community. We've looked at the, their devotion uh, to fellowship, which is making them a loving community. This morning, I want us to just look at uh, the fact that, that why they were a compelling church and an obedient church with regard to them being a worshiping community. You with me? Say, hallelujah, I finally understand if you're with me. All right, that's good. Good. So first point this morning is this, the compelling nature of their worship. Look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Really in this verse are, are two categories of devotion. There's the apostle teaching and fellowship is one, meaning, listen, pay attention to the word of God and do it. And then there's the breaking of bread and prayers. We're going to hear in that this morning, right? Uh, the word worship, that in the breaking of bread and the prayers is their devotion to worship. Let's begin with the breaking of bread. Let me ask you a really hard question. In the Greek, right, uh, what do you think breaking of bread means? <laughs> Somebody said it. It means, you ready for this? This is, this is revolutionary. It means breaking of bread. It's good, isn't it? It's good stuff. You can take that home with you. Some of you are looking at me like, what's he talking about? No, listen, because it's just simply the words breaking of bread, there is some discussion as to whether they were referring to the Lord's Supper or whether they were referring to just getting together and have some chow together, right? So what does this mean that they're breaking of bread? Here's your $10,000 answer to your $10,000 question. It is both, Right? Because in the breaking of bread, as they would take the Lord's Supper, there was always a meal associated with it, right? We, we miss that today. I mean, I, I wish we like had some roast beef and mashed potatoes and green beans up here uh, that we could really fellowship, and then we finish that with the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine or the juice this morning. But we, we've somehow gotten away from that, but they didn't. The, the reality of breaking a bread of a meal went with the Lord's Supper. And so many people want to have all kinds of discussions, whether it's one or the other. I think it's both. But, but here's the important point of the breaking of bread, right? That in all of life, even in the eating of a meal, they were making much of Jesus. That's what I want you to get. That in all of life, even in the eating of a meal, it would come, it would, it would rise out of them that they would indeed make much of Jesus, that they would remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And remember this, right? <clears throat> it's not been but a couple of months since all of that happened when they do this. Right? So there is this sense of newness and awareness of what is going on as they break the bread. In fact, it would have just been two and a half months ago that Jesus would have sat in an upper room with the disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which has been shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as they came together and as they broke bread and as they drank the wine, they would be indeed making much of Jesus. Well, that is followed by 
the prayers, right? Let me ask you something about these prayers as they follow the Lord's Supper. Do you think these prayers were for Aunt Susie's hangnail? Okay. here's my answer. They could have been for Do you understand what I mean by Aunt Susie? Like, the reality, they have this great spiritual experience, and then they pray, and they have this long laundry list of what they want God to do. Right? So then, do this, do that, heal this, do this, heal Aunt Susie's hangnail, and the reality of that. Listen, I I don't want to make light of those things. We'll get to that in a second. But here's where I think. If they are making much of Jesus in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup, and then that's followed by the prayers, and there is a definite article there of, of certain prayers in which they're offering. I think those prayers are prayers of the psalmist. Those are prayers that, that later we see Peter praying, that we see Paul praying for the church. Those are prayers of adoration. Those are prayers of worship. Out of the reality of the meal comes prayers of devotion. Those are worship. Now hear me. Aunt Susie's hangnail is important. It is important that you pray for one another. It's important that you pray for yourself. It's important that you pray for healing. But listen, I I probably don't need to teach you about that thing because that is 99% of what you already do. Where I think we need some equilibrium is the reality of recognizing that we need to pray as well in adoration to God. God, we think you are awesome. We think you are marvelous to take moments and time to think and to worship him as one who has indeed saved us and redeemed us and uses us. And I think that's the prayer that is happening here. So there is the breaking of the bread and there is prayer. And I think it is all of these things that lead us to the fact that they are devoted to worship of God. So all of that to say that what I think verse 42 is saying, that the church is devoted to worship. Further evidence of this is seen later in the text. Look at verse 46. It'll be on the screen. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their houses, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Here's something. Don't fly by that. They were still going to the temple. Did you hear that? And, 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 and this is maybe what we... They were, going, they were going to the temple day by day. Right? So, like, you know what that means in the Greek? Every day. They're going to the temple, right? And they're going to this place in which there has been historically great worship of God. It's not unfamiliar to them when they would have walked with Jesus. When Jesus entered a new town, where did he go? He went to the temple. He went to the synagogue. As Paul would enter a town, where did he go? We see later in Acts. He would go to the synagogue or to the temple. When Peter would enter a town, they were still going because, listen, Christ did not come to abolish that part of the word or the law, but he came to what? Somebody tell me. To fulfill it. Right? So that part of it is important. And here they see that this, this new church that's emerging is still going to the temple day by day. Well, one of the other things that I think might be cool is the reality that they, they, they may be doing some evangelism at the temple, right? But would it not be good that they would go to the temple and, and celebrate with them the, the Old Testament tradition, but then maybe on their way out of church going, hey, Jimmy, did you know what we talked about today, that whole Isaiah 53 passage? That was about Jesus. 
It was about the Messiah. The one that I've been telling you about that came, did all that healing, did all that stuff that I walk with. The, the reality is, is that they had opportunities to talk about Jesus as one who's come to fulfill what they had just celebrated in the temple. Listen, one of my great memories of being in Israel, even in this day and age, was seeing the devotion of Jewish people. It would not be uncommon to see a Jewish young man on a rooftop, bowed before his God, praying. It would not be unusual uh, to be in a home and to know that that family and those people were indeed devoted to the prayers, to the Torah of the Scriptures. There's a great devotion at the temple, and it's that devotion that this group of people, this new church is becoming aware of. And so day by day, they're at the temple. And then again, we see the breaking of bread, but with an added note that they're doing this in their homes. I think again, it's the meal, but it's a a meal that erupts into worship. Um, Something that they would not have been able to do at the Jewish temple, but one of the things that they would not abandon doing even amongst themselves in the fellowship with one another. And don't miss that in all of this, it says here in the text that they are praising God. And as they are praising God through this, they're compelling the people or having favor with all the people. Can can you just hear in this that worship in the early church was not contained to the four walls of church. They were devoted to an all-out life of making much of Jesus, of praising God. And in so doing, they are intriguing people about what it is that was happening in their hearts. They were a worshiping community that was compelling to those around them. Also note, secondly, that they're obedient in doing so. So we see the compelling nature of their worship. We also see the obedient nature of their worship. Some rumblings, ramblings of my mind this week as I've thought about this uh, it comes down to really one statement. It's a, it's a crazy statement, and I want you to hear the craziness of it. Are you ready? That as God's people, we have been made by God to worship God. That obedience for us is making much of Jesus, is making much of God. In fact, I would go as far to say that as God's people, the primary purpose that we have been saved is so that we will be worshipers of God. I'm feeling some pushback. Some of you, someone out there is going, maybe streaming, uh, right? They're going, wait a minute, I got saved so that I would go to heaven forever, right? Like, like that's why I got saved. I, I don't know about this whole give God glory thing, but I, I know I, got, I, I accepted Jesus. I walked that out. I prayed that prayer so that I know I go to heaven. Well, my, my pushback to your pushback would be, what do you expect to do in heaven? Worship God, right? <laughs> and so the reality of even your saving to be going to heaven is the reality that you being prepared, and we're being prepared even in this day, to be worshipers of God, that He has indeed created us to be worshipers of Him. L- listen, that the reason God had His people build a tabernacle and eventually a temple in the Old Testament was so that His people might gather to worship Him together. 
And the reason that he instituted the church in the New Testament was so that the saved might come together to give him glory. There's a great Presbyterian document called the Westminster Catechism. Some of you know this, right? And the first question of that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of man? Somebody know it? Ah, such good Presbyterians, it's music to my ears, right? The reality is, yes, so let me repeat your mumbling so that those who may not know it. The first question is, what is the chief end? What is the chief purpose of God? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, before you glibly pass over that and say, no, duh, pastor, I want you to think about that statement. I want you to think about the depth, maybe the craziness of that thought. And I'm going to do that by stealing an illustration from David Platt. David Platt was talking about worship one day, and he said, listen, I was just thinking about this, and so I'll I'll, I'll personalize it. The reality is, is, you know, the other day, let me tell you, I, I was writing some poems, right, about how great I was. It was coming so easily, line after line of how great Rick is, poem after poem, I was putting all those together in a nice book, because what I wanted to do was I wanted to give those poems to Dadine so that she could read them to me. <laughs> right? So writing poems of how great I am, honey, I, I have a really fun activity. I made this book for you about how great I am, and I want you to just sit and read it to me. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. Right? Now, the illustration breaks down because I'm a knucklehead, right? And that's not it. But, but do you understand the depth of what that statement says? That's exactly what God did in the Psalms. He wrote poems about how great he was, and then he said, listen, people of God, be obedient and read these to me. Read these to me. And we do. And guess what? We have fun doing it. Because, listen, we were created by God to give him worship. It's what we were made for. Some of you are going, hey, is there a Bible verse for that? Because I, I, I don't want to just believe you. Good thinking, right? Good thinking. Uh, if you have your Bibles, maybe real quickly to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, there's a part of it's on the screen. I didn't write it all out for you. But here's what's, what Ezekiel's doing in Ezekiel 36. He, he's prophesying of God, and God is telling the people of Israel, you're all knuckleheads, right? <laughs> Listen, you follow me one day, then you don't follow me the other. You, you follow, you worship after me one day, then the next day you're worshiping some other God. And, and, and it's just, you are knuckleheads. But, verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, And in that acting, he's going to have grace upon them, still redeem them, still save them. But for the sake of what? My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will, listen, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know, here's what's on the screen, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's saying, you're knuckleheads. You don't get it. But listen, my glory is too important not to miss. So I'm going to save you knuckleheads so that my glory is shown, right? You say, well, I want another one. Isaiah 43 
real quickly. Isaiah 43, the first seven verses. It's this amazing passage in which God is using the prophet Isaiah to tell him, tell the people of God how much he loves them. He says, this is verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, get that, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And then he goes on with all these incredible promises. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I love this text, right? Boy, he loves me. This is cool. I can go anywhere. He's going with me. But guess why? Because in verse 7, it says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. Why does he walk through us, with us through the fire? Why does he not overwhelm us with the flood? Because he intends to make worshipers of us. You say, well, I want a New Testament verse, for those of you that don't like the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. So this is Paul, right? And at the very beginning of the book of Galatians, he's talking about how he has been called out by God. Verse 15 says, but when he who had set me apart, so Paul says, when he, he being God, who had set me being Paul apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me and then get this in order that. So he, he, he loved me enough that he called me out before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles that I might make him known, that I might live for his glory. Listen, the Acts Church understood the reality of these things, that they have been made for God's glory. Just picture the church after Pentecost. God has richly blessed them, has poured out his Holy Spirit upon them. They did not have to get together and say, hmm, you know what? It's about time we went over to Johnny's house and had a hymn sing, right? That is not the culture that is there. Or, or, or even in a conversation where somebody says, hey, you know, we should probably go to Johnny's house and, and, and get together and worship God. They would go, again? Didn't we do that yesterday? Maybe we should like to start doing that once a week or something, right? I, I, I don't know. No, listen, the culture is they're at Johnny's house having some good lamb, and all of a sudden worship breaks out because they're talking about how good God is. Why? Because they're obedient to the nature of God in them. They're being what God has made them to be in bringing glory. And so they could meet every day. They could go to the temple every day. And they could break bread together and worship him. And because there was a cultural eruption of what God was doing. Matt Chandler has said this, when our hearts are in line with Jesus, when we are attentive and discerning of all that he is doing for us, our deepest pleasure and joy will be in worshiping God. The supreme satisfaction of our hearts will be in praising God. Our devotion to an all-of-life worship is not provoked by duty. It is brought on by being inspired by all that God has done for us in realizing this is what he's made us for. 
And that is what is happening in the early church. And that is why God is adding to their number daily. All good, but what about us, right? What about us? Are we being who we've been made to be in worship? Are we being obedient in our worship? And is that a compelling thing to those around us that God might be adding to our number? Now, this is a point where the preacher can get all bully-like, right? Right? Because he can get up and say, like, you should love coming to church every week. They did it every day. Why don't you do it every week? You know, right? We get all bully. Or, or I, I can get all bully on you. So you should be uh, an expressive worshiper just like me. Follow me, right? I like to raise my arms. I like to dance up here. That's why I don't sit in one of those pews that can find me, right? And, and, and I could get all bully on you, right? That you need to be more expressive in your worship. Listen, that's not the point of this. It's not the point to allow me to make you think that you should somehow be like me. But it's that we, indeed, might be a culture that erupts in worship for God. Guilting you into behavior modification cannot be the point. What is the point is that we must ask ourselves about our hearts. And maybe this helps. What if I were to tell you that I've been really busy this week and I've interviewed five of all of your closest friends, right? And I've asked them, what are the three things that you are most passionate about? So I've gathered five of your closest friends. I've asked them all, what are three things that you, that I am most passionate about? I want you to be reflective. I haven't done that, by the way. But I want you to be reflective for just a second. Would Jesus be in the top three? I'll even push it a little more. Would Jesus be number one? Here's another thought. I haven't done this either, but it would be tempting, right? That, that I've uh, somehow, because, you know, we can do this now, well, I've taped you at every conversation that you've had for the past three days, right? And what I've done is I, I, I've, uh, in that taping, I've made a pie chart of your greatest passions, right? Based upon what it is that you talk about most and with the degree of intensity of which you talk about it, right? And we've made a pie chart, and now I'm going to put your pie chart on the screen, <laughs> right? To see what it is that you're most... Would Jesus be a large part of the pie chart? That's the reflection that this passage has led me too. And has made me humble. Because if I'm honest, maybe you, if you're honest, we're not devoted to our worship of God in an all-out, every part of life way. We live in a day in which the world seems to think that this gathering is just a gathering. And that the government can somehow tell us to halt our public worship services for the safety of our people. You're about to get a small pastor rant. Do you sense that coming? 
And, and I, I want to confess that we, choose my words carefully, we gave into that for nine weeks in which we taped and you watched and we worshiped. And there's no sense in regretting something that's in the past. But I want us as a body to learn from where we were. To tell you, I don't want to use the word never, but boy, it's going to take a lot for me to be told that I can't open those doors for you to publicly worship. And listen, that's, that's not about me. That's about being an obedient and compelling church. Now, listen, th those of you that are streaming, that, that's not any condemnation on you. There's nothing sacred or wonderful about the fact that we're present. You're present. We're glad you're present. You're being safe. We're glad that you're being safe, right? It's not about an individual of whether they come or whether they mask or whether they think about this or whether they think about that. It's this, that as a church, we're going to worship our king. And if there's two of you here and the rest of you are streaming, glory, hallelujah. If there's a hundred of you here, if there's two hundred, whatever it is. I've been blessed this week in hearing about John MacArthur Church and Grace, or Grace Church in Southern California in which they've been told by their government that they can't meet. And John MacArthur, if you're aware, just he didn't say that they were meeting. He just didn't lock the doors. And he did what he did every week. He gets up and he preaches, was to an empty congregation, to a bunch of empty seats. But then somebody realized that the doors weren't locked. And they began to wander in. Last week they had 3,000 people packed out at Grace Church in Southern California to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Folks, that's being obedient. And listen, it's compelling. Do you know how many news channels John MacArthur's been on this week? Has the state come yet? No. But Jesus has. Okay, get your pastor off his rant because we've got to get to the table, right? I, I just want you to hear the reality of what obedience and what compelling is. Could it, could it be that your friends, even for those of you who stream, are like, why in the world do you get up every Sunday morning, turn on your TV or your computer or your iPad and watch this thing? Why would you risk your lives going in a group where there's people and germs and who knows what, right, meandering around? Why would we do that? Because we're called to worship God. What it is, being obedient to who we are and compelling to a world that so desperately needs hope in this day. So let's together, today with the apostles and the saints who have gone before us, come to this table and break bread and remember his death and resurrection. Reflect on his love that we might be different in loving our God. That as Matthew West says, and I'll end with this, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, 
What if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? Our worship coming to this table is not going through the motions, but rather may it be characterized by loving Jesus, by being today a worshiping community.